Please pray with me. Lord, we, we ask you today that you'd help us to see where we fit in the picture. And as you paint that picture through your word, Lord, may we grow in, in your grace, in your love. May we be led to greater understanding of what that picture looks like and who we are and whose we are. We pray this as you live, Jesus, as, as God himself, with the Father and the Spirit as one God now and always, we pray it. Amen. Amen. I want to show you a picture today. Let's see if we can pull that up. There's a picture. The question is, what is that a picture of? It's kind of artistic. It's kind of beautiful. Obviously, it's something brass, right? And, but in and of itself, it, it's hard to figure out, well, what is that? There's a greater context. You know, and that's one of the things is when a picture is, is zeroed in, sometimes the question is, what's the bigger picture? And, and Well, let's do this. Let's zoom out and, and see what its context is. And it might help us to understand there is a bigger picture at play here. You know, life can be like that, too, that sometimes we get so focused on the detail, we, we miss out on the bigger picture. When people say, what's the big picture? There's a lot more involved with that, isn't it? You probably are figuring it out now. Where are we? We're here. And, you know, and, and here's the cross, and here's my hand, right? And there's some of you. And when they say a picture's worth a thousand words, well, there's a lot to this picture, and and the reason we wanted to show you this to begin is really the goal of today and is we're going to get a sense of context of what is the bigger picture. And as we as, as a congregation are zeroing in on a, a text of Scripture that often has been called the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son, and as we've been learning that maybe another better title might be the prodigal God, that God is recklessly abandoned and spending all that he has on us to welcome us into his kingdom, but that there's a greater context at play that goes, just, goes beyond just one son. There's two sons and, and a father and, and what God has to say, but there's an even greater picture and a greater context. And what we want to do today is just zoom out a little bit without falling off the back of the pulpit, is zoom out to see what is God really teaching us. And, and what I'd like to do with you right now is um, open scripture. Let's pull that, that uh, worship Bible out together today. And let's turn to Luke chapter 15 to get some context, to get our bearings of what is the bigger picture in the realm of what God is teaching us. Luke chapter 15. I encourage you, um, really do this because we're going to zero in on the text today in a big picture way, but also narrowing in along the way using our Zoom focus spiritually too. Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at some context. And let's start with verse 1. Read it with me. Now the tax collectors and sinners we're all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. If you've read chapter 1 in preparation for today, or if you read it this week in our book, Keller does a nice job of zeroing in on the fact that the bigger picture here is context. 
And, and who are the people gathering around Jesus? We, we really got two social groups here. We got the sinners that, that the, the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the teachers of the law, they're saying these sinners that are gathering around Jesus and the, the text there makes it really clear in the language that they were in the ongoing process of gathering with Jesus often. It's just not a one-time event. In fact, we see that throughout the Gospels that Jesus seems to really draw people who are outside and outcasts of the church. And they're there, the sinners, the tax collectors, those that worked for the Roman government who were considered rejectors of, of, of the Jewish establishment. Like, how could they work for the Romans and, and abandon everything that we hold sacred? Um, how could Jesus spend time with people who are outside the realm of the church of his day? They didn't like this at all. And yet you have these two groups there that day. You've got the religious outcast as, or, as well as the religious in-crowd. They're both there. And, and there's the context as we zoom out. Who was there that day? And to that situation, the grumbling, the mumbling, the complaining, as it says there, they were muttering. <laughs> the word kind of speaks pretty much what it is. This man welcomes sinners. You can almost hear the whine, right? And he eats with them. And as we've been learning, to eat with someone, to have table fellowship with someone is a really big deal. That's to accept them, to welcome them. And in that culture, that meant everything. Who you spent time with around a table was a really big deal. And there you have the context of people around Jesus. Jesus speaks to their muttering, and he speaks to the context. And as we look at really what amounts to three parables in a row, where Jesus is going to teach us something about that. This is the greater picture. I really believe this strongly, that Jesus is going to teach us something today. He's going to teach us more about who he is and what he does. He's going to teach us more about who the church is and what the church does. And thirdly, and really through this whole series, he's going to teach each of us individually who we are and what God calls us to be. Does that make sense? So God, the church, you and me. Let's, let's see how this plays out. It's in verse 3. It says, Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, I'm going to stop there for a minute because, again, remember context. Who is he speaking to in this, in this situation? You've got two different groups. You've got the sinners, the outcasts, they're hearing this. You've also got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're hearing this. And, and what do you, if you're a Pharisee and you say, Jesus, suppose you have a hundred sheep and let's just suppose you're a shepherd. What does a Pharisee think when he hears words like that? Now, considering that shepherds were considered unclean and were not welcomed into the temple because they were dirty, Considering they were kind of on the low side of the totem pole, if you want to call it that, of, of society, they were considered among those who really were on the outside looking in. For Jesus to say, suppose you're a shepherd. Well, they're like, wow. They, you know, they would write that off. And yet there are contexts in the Old Testament where God talks about shepherding his people. Certainly their ears would have perked up to that. But Jesus goes on and he says, suppose you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them. 
Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Now, stop there. You've got Jesus painting a picture, really. This is a big picture. And, and, and picture all these sheep. And someone said, well, how, how could a shepherd abandon all the other sheep and go after the one? Well, in the context of this, very likely in that culture, there would be several, shep- a chief shepherd along with several other helpers, and that chief shepherd would go off to seek that lost sheep, but he would leave it in good hands, leave the rest of the flock in good hands as he would go off to find the lost one. He doesn't just say, forget it, it's all on its own, because here's the deal. Sheep get lost a lot. They're rather dumb, um, and, and they're not very bright. And, and, you know, from what context I've had with sheep, and if you've ever been around sheep, they really do, over and over again, are not very smart. Um, in fact, a, a sheep will, will eat itself to death, and that's what's important. A shepherd, you know, watches a sheep and makes sure it doesn't eat too much, because they'll just gouge and gouge and gouge until their, their stomachs explode. This can happen. Um, they're not too bright. Um, a sheep will, will eat grass and, and just keep eating and eating and eating and, and go off the side of a cliff and die. I mean, they just get caught up. They, how many of you have a hard time keeping focus on the big picture, right? We just get really focused and all of a sudden we just walk out and like, what? <laughs> Bump into stuff. Happens to me all the time, right? I've heard it said that, you know, a sheep can get its head stuck in a fence trying to eat the grass on the other side of the fence and I've heard from shepherds, they said, yeah, you, you pull them out of there and you're like, get them out, get their heads out. And what do they do right away? They go right back to the same spot and they're stuck again because they're not bright. And sheep get lost and are in need of a shepherd. And Jesus says, suppose you have one that gets lost and the rest are fine. Will not the shepherd go after that individual sheep? You know, it's no accident here, and maybe your mind is already thinking about it. It's no accident Jesus would elsewhere say, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus would say, you know, the, 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 all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, and, and they come to seek and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full or have it more abundantly. See, Jesus is the good shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for the sheep is one who seeks and saves. In fact, later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus would make it really clear. He'd narrow his mission down to this. He'd say, the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, this blows a lid off of the mindset of what God was like of the day. The thought was God was there just for those who had always been part of the church and always would be part of the church and who outwardly appeared to have everything together. That's what the church existed for. But Jesus challenges that idea. He says the whole reason that God has come to earth was to come to seek and to save those who are on the outside. His heart, if you want to know what God is like and you want to know the heart of a Savior, you spend time at the feet of Jesus and we learn that his heart is to seek that which is lost. We learn something about him here. In fact, we find out even more. He says when he gets home, he he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me for I have found my lost sheep. I I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Did you 
see what just happened here? Jesus has given us an even wider view picture of something that we can't see. He says, here's what it looks like in heaven, among the angels. Now, how does he know that? Well, because he came from there. In fact, I love that in, in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, that great verse, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith. And it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. You know, what's the joy? Well, it's, it's you and me. It's the lost ones. It's people who are far from God that Jesus comes and lays down his life for them that they might be drawn closer into the presence of God, that they'd be led to understand their need for God and that God would open that door and there is celebration. There's partying in heaven over this one. Those who are lost are now found and there's rejoicing in heaven. It's a picture of God. And it's a picture of what gets God pumped up. If you ever wonder what gets the heart of God stoked, it's a sinner that repents and turns toward him. Well, that's one picture Jesus gives of what he's like as the good shepherd. But there's another picture that we get to in verse 8. He goes on, he says, Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. These are drachmas that Jesus is speaking of here. And this would have been similar to a denarius. It's basically a, a day's pay. A pay. And, and to have 10 of these coins would be and represent the life savings of a family in that day. It would represent 10 days salary, which would be a life savings for many people. And the idea is if you ever were out of work, it would hopefully get you by until the next job would be made available. And it says, suppose a woman loses one of the coins. She has ten. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her girlfriends. Actually, this is all feminine here. She calls her girlfriends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. It's pretty cool. They, they have a girl's night out and they celebrate the finding of this lost coin. Now, I'm with those, there's some different interpretations of this. Is it possible, and, and this would make sense, that when Jesus switches to describing a woman who loses a coin, and, and we, we see that, that feminine ending to it, you know, there's something else when we think of context here. If Jesus is describing what he is like, could it be that he's here now describing what the church is like? Knowing that when God refers to the church, it's often called the bride. He is the bridegroom. The ecclesia, which is a feminine ending, is that we as the church are like this woman. And, and, and we've been given this incredible gift of this incredible inheritance. And, and it, here it is that wouldn't it make sense then if something is lost that we would f seek to find? That when God gives us his word, remember that, that text from the Old Testament, Psalm 119, where it says that the word is a lamp unto my feet and to my path. And Jesus who says, I am the light of the world. That a relationship with Jesus, to spend time with Christ and to know him and to be open to hearing what he would teach us and, and, and lead our minds and hearts to be about. That we too would be people who seek that which is lost. That rather than even just taking our, our, our sweep brooms out, we'd be getting out our Dyson and, and saying, let's clean this place up. Let's find what is lost because we have a heart for that which we know is lost. And that the church 
would be also consumed with that which is yet to be found. Jesus gives us a potential picture here of what the church is like. And then he says, you know, gathers the neighbors and friends together and says, rejoice with me that I have found my lost coin. That we rejoice when those who are once far from God are realizing they are very near to him because of his grace. In the same way, Jesus says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Here we have it there again. That when God leads somebody to repent, there is rejoicing. That which was lost is found. So you've got a picture here of of who God is and what God is like. You you have a picture of what the church is and what the church is like. And then it makes sense that we get into the context of the parable of the lost son in verse 11 onward that we're studying in this series, which teaches us maybe more of what we're like whether we relate more in this past week in your small group, one of the questions was, do you relate more to the elder brother or to the younger brother? And uh, I've heard feedback from others like, yeah, I, I relate more to the lost son because I've gone off and I've made some huge mistakes in my life where I've rejected God and I, I relate more to that. Others have said, wow, this has been enlightening to me. I've not realized what an elder brother I've become, very judgmental or how I, I hold over and, and pride sinks in. And I, that, that's a struggle I have. And, and it's a revealing rea- reality for all of us. What is the picture? And where do we fit in that picture that God is painting in our lives through his word? I think it's significant no matter who we relate more to, the elder brothers or the younger brothers. And we're going to study that more in the coming weeks. That what is really the secret involved here. What is it that Jesus declares is the difference between one who is lost and one who is found? There's a key word. Go back to it with me. What does Jesus say brings about rejoicing in heaven? It's a word that starts with R, and it's repentance. Sometimes we forget that. That what brings about repentance, what Jesus seems to lay in there is that when God leads us to repent, that recognizes a change. In other words, people who continue to just go their own way and go their own way and their own thoughts and their minds and their own agendas, whether that be based in pride, whether that be in rebellion, whether that be in ignorance, the turning point when God gets a hold of a human heart to realize their need for a Savior is that repentance happens. And a God who is there to rejoice and say, now you get it. Now you're in a place of brokenness and you understand your need for me. Whether a Pharisee, whether a sinner or tax collector, our need is the same. It's a need for forgiveness. And we have a God who lavishes it on us because that's part of who he is. A God who seeks and a God who finds us and a God who lavishes love. And may we grow in that amazing picture of his grace. In Jesus' name, amen.